0: Good afternoon, and welcome to MIR Radio, a podcast where we feature single episodes discussing relevant topics with our guests in order to better understand them. Today, I am joined by Natasha Force,
1: Adrian Iraka,
0: and Teresa Tolo. As we reflect on Black History Month and social activism from the Black community over the last year, this podcast will explore the relationship between Black history and the evolution of mainstream music from the 20th century until the present. To start us off, our panel will discuss the origins of jazz and blues and how these genres, along with other contributions from the Black community, laid the foundations for modern musical and social movements in North America and beyond. Expanding on the revolutionary impacts of jazz and blues, we will also consider how much of the music we listen to today draws from African and Afro-Caribbean music, as well as innovations from pioneers of younger genres like disco, dance, and hip-hop. In sum, we hope to illustrate the fundamental parallels between Black culture and mainstream music over the last century. To begin, could each of you please comment on how you would best describe the legacy of Black culture in mainstream music?
2: So I personally believe that every aspect of music and most of the genres that we see in the world have been touched by Black culture um, and everything that we hear and that we see to this day, we can trace back to some event, one or another. So yeah, so I just think it's super important to kind of know the roots and to know the history of how the music that we hear and that we listen to and that we dance to and that we sing to today, um, where it came from. Um, to kind of see what's going to go in the future and just to appreciate the people, the wonderful, talented people um, that help make music of the past and of the present.
3: Um, yeah, I think I just jump in to say, I think it's especially important, especially when I think about Black History Month, it's easy to sort of focus um, on the more painful legacies associated with Blackness. So in terms of slavery, racism, but I think music has been such an important force um, throughout history for sort of black communities, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in North America, all over the world. So I think it's definitely important to sort of look at the influences this has had in a historical context and how that's sort of spread into like a modern context as well. So I definitely agree with what Natasha said as well.
1: I think like um, a lot of times uh, listening to music, that experience can be sort of severed from the history um, of what's led to that piece existing. Uh, because it's just like a moment listening to music, but like on the individual to individual basis, I think a lot of the time, like one of the first, second great, maybe recording genres, like rock music, it's like people like the guys in the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, all listening to these different records produced by these uh, black blues musicians who were themselves basing their work off of like much longer tradition. Um, the roots are everywhere, and if you're looking at American and English music in particular, you can't really separate black music from where it's come to now
0: awesome yeah all very important points and in preparation for this podcast i've been reflecting on just how much of music like especially mainstream music and so much of what we listen to can be traced back to the black community and honestly i could not imagine music without this legacy so one of the first things that I was wondering if we look at it chronologically and we're this discussion, you know, around the nineteen thirties through the present, um, what would you folks say are some of the key historical and technical factors that best explain the emergence of earlier genres like jazz in the twentieth century?
3: Um, I think I can definitely speak more about sort of the historical aspects, especially in North America and the US coming from slavery after abolition. And with things like the Great Migration, so a lot of um, Black communities moving from the South um, more Northwards, looking for more opportunities for employment, um, just to sort of be free. Um, You can sort of see a lot of aspects that were taken from like Southern cultures and moved to the North. Um, And especially, I think at that time, People were really looking to separate themselves from that legacy of slavery. And it sort of initially grew from, um, Negro spirituals, which is very common among, um, slave populations. So it's definitely interesting to see sort of that historical influence and how, um, Black people really wanted to separate themselves from that history, but also at the same time still carry on, um, what they knew best and those influences from their African roots. Um, I think that was definitely interesting.
0: And do you think, um, Kind of drawing on how we've seen, you know, the relationship between music and politics and other, you know, forms of social advocacy evolve over the years. Do you think the fact that, and I'm posing this question to all of you, that, that those origins of um, music within um, the Black community in the United States, do you think that at all like set a precedent for the discussion of political topics or social topics in music? Do you think that that kind of created a legacy and a platform?
2: Um, yeah, for sure. I like to think that music pushes social movements and music comes from social movements as well. When times are at its lowest, great art is produced. And we've seen that throughout history through Jim Crow, through the Great Depression, through both the world wars. Like, whenever times are at their lowest, art has been produced at an incredible scale. And I think that especially right now, I'm very excited to see what's going to come out of this in terms of art, in terms of music, and we've already seen a lot of great music being produced throughout this whole pandemic.
3: Um, I think just to sort of, um, and then go back to the historical classic, I think a lot of times we also have to realize that not every sort of Black artist goes and decides, okay, I'm going to use, you know, my platform for civil rights movements. And I think um, if you think about after the fact, I think once a lot of Black musicians get into a position where, okay, they're starting to get a bit famous, then they sort of realize all these obstacles that stand in between them. That sort of motivates them to then use their platform. So I think it's important to us remember a lot of the times people just are really good at singing. They're really good at playing an instrument. They're just really passionate about their art. Um, so I think it's important to realize that, again, sometimes those civil rights movements um, and social movements do go hand in hand. But it's initially just, you know, out of pure joy and love for music that a lot of these sort of more revolutionary artists um, like Nina Simone and um, a lot of historical jazz artists have come.
1: I think it's a really fascinating point thinking back to early blues artists like Muddy Waters and uh, Robert Johnson. Like these are people who for sure had a proficiency in their instrument. Like namely in this case, uh, the the guitar, but also just I think, I think a lot of the beauty just comes from how like when you have something to say, whether it's like in terms of like your, you know, verbal phrasing and the words that you choose or it's uh, in terms of musical phrasing and the vocabulary that you can employ. Being skilled at speaking or being skilled at playing your instrument kind of allows you to kind of go beyond just the fact of playing an instrument or singing or saying words. It's it's just a conduit for expression. And that, that I think is just is, is quite, quite interesting and, and quite valuable. Uh, it's a really personal element b- brought in by like genres like the blues. On the other hand, I think like something that's quite fascinating as well is that in the heat of the South, um, you have areas like Congo Square uh, in Louisiana, where slaves were historically allowed to basically meet up and gather. And in those spaces, you'd have like a sharing of ideas and different types of virtual musical moments that would take place there. And this was like a really rare thing to have happened and is arguably one of the places where I guess like jazz would at some point take off from and later when you have the great migration then you have all these musicians who have been kind of steeped in this culture moving out to like Chicago and New York where just to name two particularly important cities where they start to dabble with new styles and take that expressiveness elsewhere.
0: That's a really good point and I think one of the things that's interesting about that is while we look at music as something that brings us together which it absolutely does Historically, especially if we're looking through the framework of critical race theory and race relations, we've also seen that music has at times been treated as something Exclusionary in that when we look at many of these jazz musicians that have been mentioned, as well as Teresa's point about how there can be a radicalizing effect of recognizing the obstacles that stand between a musician and their goals and their art. How has that impacted both music that has developed out of jazz and blues, as well as the kind of way that music has been, has been used by the Black community?
2: I think that music in general is kind of a form of communication. It's its own language and it conveys like a shared history among people who relate to it. So I think that having music that specifically like black communities identify with is really a great thing because throughout history, as we've mentioned that there it's always been black and white. It's there's, it's never been one whole group everything has been separated, whether it's institutional, whether it's social, political, there's always been a separation. And I, be- I think that music has the power to bring people together and to make people who are typically excluded from major decision making from society can bring them together. And it forms a community among a bunch of people who have been previously ostracized.
3: Yeah, I think just going off of Natasha's point, um, actually um, I'm taking a religion and sexuality class at the moment and we've been talking about um the way that people sort of use the body as a form of social control. We're looking at sort of the the Black um Pentecostal and Baptist churches and a lot of the times we'll see, like I don't know if you, any of you have ever been to a Black church, but it's a crazy time. Like people are singing, everyone's like super, you know, into it. Like there's crying, there's a lot of emotion. So looking at that and how like this sort of gives like a lot of black communities, that release of being able to go to church and being able to have this sense of community and just embrace their faith and sort of separate themselves from the lack of social control they have outside of these spaces, um so I think it's definitely interesting to see how that's evolved um, and again, if you ever watch a video of like black church, it's so like seems so dramatic, but then again, it's a very sort of cathartic process, which I think we've also seen a lot of times in music where you know a lot of artists just put their whole heart and soul. And really talk about issues that really affect them um, and use that as like sort of a release.
1: I think like later on, uh, like gospel is an incredibly important genre to what you'd see in, uh, in hard bop in terms of like 401 plagal cadences and all these sorts of techniques that you see that were going on in the churches. But then later on, I find, I find that there's this really interesting thing that takes place, at least lyrically, with the emergence of soul. Which I've heard described as a a secular gospel where you can have, instead of maybe devotional lyrics and, and asking questions about like, like God and your place and existence and stuff like that, you can have using the same like really intense like emotional tension building musical techniques, conversations about like love and the heart and your place in the world in the moment, which I think is quite fascinating. It's kind of like a mold breaking genre though it is so heavily based on gospel techniques.
0: And if we're to uh, shift our focus away from the North American context, I was curious to ask how did genres from around the world, like reggae and Afrobeats, contribute to the evolution of mainstream music, as well as the development of music since the 1960s and 70s? Um,
3: I feel like there's a lot to unpack with that question, because again, I feel like um, just considering sort of the African diaspora, um, whether that was through sort of migration for work or slavery, all these different types of music have had the, um, sort of the time to evolve depending on the area. Um, so if you talk about Africa specifically, sort of going back to the emergence of Afrobeat, which has sort of, you know, sort of blown up on the like mainstream scale of recently. So thinking how that also sort of came from like some social movements. So thinking of people like Palakudi who use his platform sort of speak out against the government Um and how a lot of these genres then sort of come to intersect and have different elements together. So again, talking about, you know, like the connections between the Latin American diaspora, and the Caribbean diaspora, Um there's a lot of different connections that we can see over there. Um And again, there's sort of that evolution of the traditionally like African instruments. So the drums and all these different aspects that are then adapted to whatever, you know, context that people find themselves in.
2: I can speak about reggae. So there was a big migration within the 1970s to Britain from Jamaica. So a lot of Jamaican immigrants went to Britain and Canada and the United States. And with them, they brought their music, which at the time, the most popular form of music in Jamaica was reggae. We all know the big ones, Bob Marley, Peter Tosh, the Wailers, Jimmy Cliff, but a lot of jamaican people brought their music to um their new homes and we see an influx of reggae adaptations from musicians such as Eric Clapton and we see musicians that have that kind of took on a reggae influence like UB40, they created their own band, and they sang many reggae songs like Red Red Wine, a very popular one. And they brought the reggae style with them. So if we can just look in that specific context, how such like a political movement caused a migration, which in turn brought music from a small little island in the Caribbean to the rest of the world. And I honestly think that's a great thing. More people get to hear it, more people get to identify and love it. And yeah,
1: uh, to turn to Brazil, in the mid to late 1960s, you have movements emerging like Tropicalia, Samba's already underway, and artists like George Benjor and Jubeth Gil are really trying to infuse their blackness and their identity as, as being part of like an af- African diaspora that was brought to the Americas uh, on the slave boats and, and, and really put that into their music. Uh, one great example to just choose one song. Uh, by George ben is his song called Zumbi, uh, which basically is a lyrical play on this one particular historical figure called Zumbi who used to um, uh, basically used to help runaway slaves uh, or like people who were running away from the actual uh, uh, slave trade on the coast uh, move further inland into these camps uh, where they could be like relatively safe and were often called out for this. like, But you see a lot of things like the talking drum, Uh, which comes from Nigeria, uh, being featured in their music quite heavily, on top of an already very complex, melodic, harmonic landscape.
3: Yeah, I think sort of um, going off of what Adrian was saying, to continue with like at least the Latin American continent, um, again, that influence of like, you know, that huge diaspora community, I think Brazil has like the largest community of the African diaspora. I think it's more than like 50 million, which really goes to show how, you know, like black communities have, gone across the world and really established themselves in different kinds of music and then to connect that to um, sort of like what Natasha was saying about um, Jamaican uh, migrants so at least with reggaeton which is one of the most sort of popular um, emerging forms of music these days um, that also originated from Jamaican migrant workers who basically went to Panama um, to build the Panama canals and then sort of settled there and then at the same time when reggae music was exploding 70s it sort of made its way to Panama um, with these like migrant communities. And then they sort of formed it into like a reggae in Espanol. So like a Spanish reggae um, and then getting those Latin influences. Um, and then a lot of, you know, different artists such as like Nando Boom who really established um, the Dembo rhythm. So if you ever hear any like reggaeton songs, there's like a very similar rhythm that you'll hear through all of them. So, at the same time, you also have to realize that a lot of the times people don't realize the history of this. So reggaeton, of course, also has a lot of Latin American Spanish influences. But again, when you really look back at the roots, it does come from this sort of African diaspora.
0: So to that end, I was wondering if the three of you could maybe comment on the interactions that we've seen between these genres and these different communities, both throughout history and today. And maybe even touch on any potential political, social, and economic implications of these exchanges.
1: I'd really love to bring this idea of like interaction between different genres and different like musical movements uh, into what's going on today. It's not so much a clean break, but a bit of a break between what's gone on since the dawn of recorded music. Um, this idea of like genre—it's—it's it's helpful if you want to teach somebody about how uh, certain stylistic tendencies play out if you want to learn how to play in the jazz style you can do that because we have kind of an anthology as consecrated in like the great american Songbook and the real book by berkeley college of music and you can do that and you can also learn certain things like what constitutes the classic reggae sound as a set of tendencies of, of musical language but going into today what's really quite wonderful is you see a lot of uh, different black artists who are fusing together different ideas, different elements. They're kind of blending the lines between genres. And one artist that really sticks out to me in, in that regard is Cosmo Pike, who really floats between indie rock ideas and, and joyful pop melodies, but also plays on reggae and uses rap style for his lyrics sometimes. And I think that's a pretty amazing thing to see, just in the sense that it doesn't seem like music is going towards being many separate things, but seems to be going the, into a convergence. <laughs>
3: just to go off on what adrian was saying i think you also see this sort of convergence and like your desire to stay outside of these like genre these distinct genre boxes um in terms of afrobeat as i mentioned before so i think now at least it's emerging um i think it's called alta it's sort of like a mix of afrobeat and more alternative RB. because again i think a lot of artists you know if you come from a certain country people assume okay you're only going to make music that's like this way so i think a lot of more like young nigerian afrobeat um artists are seeing how they confuse different influences and you know sort of still have that you know traditional style but do their own thing so a lot of artists like santi odunsi a lot of different artists who have just you know expanded on the mainstream because of this ability to sort of you know experiment and try different forms of music and really like take their own individual take on what they think modern music should be like
0: so as you've all mentioned, there clearly is a convergence between different musical styles and influences at play here, which is to be expected whenever there's a free exchange in the marketplace of ideas, whether they're creative ideas or otherwise. However, at what point does exchange and convergence cross the line into something different, like appropriation or theft? Obviously there's no simple answer to these questions, but, there, but is there a dividing line? And in what ways do social power dynamics, such as those that are informed by neocolonialism and race relations, how do they affect the sharing of musical ideas in multicultural societies?
1: There's always been idea sharing. When you have a record that you can market or that you, really that you can just sell, and anybody can walk into the record store and pick that up or find it, I guess, on iTunes and stuff, right? You can, as a musician or, and, and as somebody who's like listening attentively to that, take ideas from it. And, and this might take place in a way that is completely, un- that goes by unnoticed. It's like a subconscious choice, but it could also be like something that you want to emulate and you actively attempt to emulate. I mean, in the, in the fifties, when John, Paul, Ringo, and George, uh, were listening to all these, uh, old like lead belly records and muddy water, rec- muddy waters records. Uh, and Elvis had just put out Hound Dog, which had previously been done by big mama Thornton. Uh, there's a great video of her at this like train track setting where she's where she's singing it. You see, uh, you see this situation where artists are kind of being like ripped off, and there's not necessarily credit being given for what's going on there. And moving a little bit, quite a bit forward in history, like towards the mid '80s and '90s, when people like Grandmaster Flash are first trying out this idea of getting a break on a record and having that single line repeat like a drum. Piece, you know repeat it's it's kind of like taking that to a whole other level where it's like not even just like trying to emulate a style or like cover a song but it's like the actual song itself and it kind of goes on
3: um yeah i think i'm just gonna speak i guess you're gonna get in a more modern context i know emma you mentioned so the issues with like appropriation i think it's also important to think about so when you think about like so let's say popular artists like diplo so diplo is one of like you know the most well-known djs sold out like lots of shows like number one on the Billboard charts um and a lot of the times he'll sort of go to these different countries of like black diaspora, he'll go to like Jamaica, he'll go to Nigeria, he'll meet these artists and then, you know, sort of integrate their songs into his. But at the end of the day, you know, everyone's going to say, oh, that's a Diplo song, you know, like that. the issue then comes, you know, where is your credit being given, especially for, you know, like a lot of black artists who have been marginalized, who have had to struggle, who had to, you know, kick down Doris tables to get their music heard. When, you know, a big artist like Diplo comes and says, okay, do you want to be on the song? You know, of course you're going to take that chance. But then again, you have to realize like, where where is the money going? Where are the rights to these songs going? They're mostly going to still that big artist. So I think it's important to realize, you know, definitely these artists can help, you know, bring like, you know, a lot of these genres, a lot of these sort of black music on the bigger scale. at the end of the day, if they're still getting their credit for it, especially when this music has been born through years and years of struggle um, and so much difficulty faced by Black communities, I think that's where the issue comes. And that's where we need to sort of make sure that Black music isn't being commodified, isn't being turned into like a radio pop song. Because again, even thinking about, again, going back to Afrobeat, like there's a kind of thing at least, so I'm from Kenya, so just growing up. Hearing all of these, you know, very popular like African songs. And I think for the longest time, I wouldn't say I felt like a shame, but I feel like, you know, like listening to my traditional, you know, African music with friends, people were like, oh, what is that? But then now that Afrobeat and African music has sort of gone on the global scale, everyone's like, yeah, definitely. Like, you know, I really want to listen to that. So I think it's important to realize, you know, for a lot of people, this music is very cultural, it's very historical. So if it gets to a point where it's just being commodified to, you know, add an extra dollar into Diplo's pocket, that's when it becomes a little problematic.
2: Okay, I have a lot to say. I'm so excited. So my first point, there's a line between appropriation and appreciation. So as Adrian previously mentioned, like idea sharing um, and getting inspiration from previous artists. And I, I study art history, so um, I see, I study a lot of art that has been produced by many artists over time. Like, there's countless variations of The Last Supper because art comes from art. And that same thing applies to music as well. But there is also a line between appropriation and appreciation and the commodification of a certain genre for a certain person's like benefit, kind of ripping them off. And just to add, kind of add to Teresa's point, so my family's from Jamaica. I grew up in Canada and we as a kid I listened to a lot of reggae, soca, dance hall, and I was kind of put off. I didn't kind of parade that around for many years because I would stick it like a sore thumb. But now it's kind of grown to a mainstream level. You see that in a lot of different types of music. We see that with a lot of artists. They've used soca songs or They've kind of taken inspiration from Soka songs. They, they start speaking patois, and people now think it's Toronto slang or, or British slang. But when I was a kid, I'd be hearing those words from my dad, from my family, and now they're trendy and now they're popular. So it's okay. So that's just one point. My second point is talking about giving credit to artists. So uh, there's a s- special case that came to mind. I want everybody who's listening to watch the movie one night in Miami on Amazon Prime, I tell everybody to watch it because it's amazing. So there's a special case that comes to mind. Um, it's called It's All Over Now, written by Bobby and Shirley Walmack and produced by one of my favorite singers in the world, Sam Cooke. And they wrote this song and it hit the charts at 94 on Billboard 100, June 27th, 1964. But what Sam Cooke did because he believed that if the person who makes more than the artist is the songwriter and the producer when kind of distributing a song. So they sold the song to the Rolling Stones and they made sure that their name was on it. So when the Rolling Stones debuted with this song, they hit number one with the song credits in their name. They got a lot of money from the Rolling Stones as their success. And there's been some criticism around that is oh, they're selling it to this white group from Britain, and they hit number one. But what people don't really see is that the key to freedom in the current society that we live in is financial flexibility and financial freedom. So by being able to capitalize off of this success allowed Sam Cook and uh, the writers, the other writers, Bobby and Shirley Walmack to kind of get, gain their own form of success as well. They may not have been the face of it, but they were the people behind working the machine.
3: I was gonna say, I think um, as much as we want to acknowledge, like you know, all the issues that do come with credit, I think it's also important to acknowledge within um, the Black community, within Black artists, how that can sort of be done in a the right way, if that makes sense. So I think we think about, especially looking at hip hop and rap, um, and just like sampling from older um, artists. I think that's also sort of contributed to keeping these legacies alive. So if you think about um, Kanye West, like Kanye West, pretty much all of his songs are like all sampled from like older, whether it's like jazz, whether it's blues, soul. Um, But again, the benefit of that is that it brings all of these older styles of music to to a younger generation. So being able to hear Kanye West and like going back and seeing, oh, where did the sample come from? You know, bringing all of those old styles and integrating them with like the more modern hip hop aspects that people, you know, like. And then again, you could also sort of make that make issue with other artists. For example, let's say Drake, who again, very popular, one of the most recognizable artists. But again, has sort of been able to benefit from going into all these different cultures, taking the aspects that he enjoys, and then still getting their credit for it. So I think it's important to realize that as much as, you know, this does play into sort of non-Black artists appropriating this music, but again, within the Black community, there are some issues with, you know, bigger artists taking credit for, like, smaller artists from different countries and from marginalized communities. But again, I think it can be done in a right way, where, you know, it's just making sure that all of these older techniques are still being appreciated by younger generations.
1: When it comes to hip hop, it, it's something that I find difficult to, to uh, make a decision on or a definitive uh, judgment on, just because I think part of the art of hip hop, in terms of like at least the the beat making, like is sampling. And of course, uh, I mean, for anybody who's ever listened to these uh, to, to this genre uh, as a whole, like it, a single two bar section might play an integral role in the entire music soundscape of uh, of a song. And in a way I think like it kind of preserves the song. It gives it new light and you have people like Jay Dilla and Madlib who or Pete Rock who would basically go into these like gymnasium spaces and there would just be rows and rows and rows upon other rows of of tables with records on top of them. They would be digging for for the entire day and they would come out of that with a whole stack of records things that you know people maybe weren't really talking about things that might've been small time hits or had like interesting instrumentation. And they're like, Oh, I, I'm going to be able to use that, you know? And in that way, when they took those records and they put them on to their own songs and their own beats, I, I think it, it can, it preserves the song. It gives it new light in a sense. At the same time though, uh, not all, it hasn't always been credited. Like with uh, the song cream by, uh the Wu-Tang clan, the sample that they use for the piano line, it's really beautiful piano line, uh, and this like little like horn section that, that goes on is I, as long as I've got you by the Charmels, And that was not acknowledged. On the other hand, uh what I really appreciate about Madlib is that he's actually been going out and talking to a lot of the in particular Ethiopian jazz artists uh, some of which have been featured on the ATL compilations or anthologies, which I really recommend you listen to. Milano is very frequently featured. And he's actually been having conversations with them on like Vice and different like programs so that he can actually get their name out there. It really depends on not so much who does it, but really how they do it.
3: Just to go off of um, Adrian's point, I think also looking up um, a lot of places in the world Within the African diaspora, a lot of sort of music collectives have popped up. Um, So at least in Montreal, um, there's this really well-known music collective called Moonshine. And it's basically a bunch of different DJs. And they also, you know, take those African sort of roots and cultural influences and then bring them in a new light. So it's really cool to see like all this mixing of like electro, house, like Afrobeats, hip hop and all that coming together. And again, I think, as you said, Adrian, that sort of enhances the style and creates a very unique sort of modern style catering to what, you know, kids or young people today really like. And so I think in that aspect, that's, you know, one of the things that's been doing really well. Um, and then similarly, there's a collective called Nyeke, Nyeke coming from Uganda, and they've also blown up on the international scale, just connecting different you know, groups of diaspora DJs and connecting them on a global scale. And obviously now with the pandemic, you know, a lot of that sort of nightlife associated with that has gone, but they've still sort of found online platforms and ways to connect and still bring this music to a greater audience. Again, so one of my favorite samples is in the song Otis
2: by Jay-Z and Kanye West. And they sampled a little section of one, another one of my favorite singers, Otis Redding's Try A Little Tenderness. And again, like as Adrian said, it brings the song a new life and i think that it brings a new generation into the past because when they hear trial of tenderness by otis Friedman, they're like oh my god i recognize that from the kanye west song and i think that's really great because younger generations like our generation gen z may not know all of the music from the 60s from the 70s whatnot and i think it's so important to, to keep these genres and to keep these musicians histories alive and by doing that and obviously in a respectful and legal manner is a super important aspect in the music industry today.
1: I mean, just to to give two examples, actually, of uh, some interesting samples. Kanye West's song, I Wonder, the um, main line that sampled is is this piece by my song, by Labby Seifer, who's uh, just uh, an excellent musician from uh, London or the UK. And then another track is Juicy by Biggie Smalls uh, and the actual track that that's taken from is Juicy Fruit by Matume and uh, one of the things that I find interesting about that is just that one of the main lines that's included is I wonder uh, in this like beautiful melody and so Kanye West actually named his song I wonder like he basically just took a part of Matume's original song title and made that the actual title of the song like, it's, it's interesting, because I, I feel like sometimes the samples, the original work is there, but it's sort of hidden in
3: sort of Easter eggs, in a way. But I just thought I'd put out these examples. They're really wonderful songs. Yeah, I think also, Aiden, I was going to add, um, I don't know if you guys are familiar with the, the Isley Brothers, but they're also, like, super influential when you look at a lot of, like, hip-hop songs and you see the influence. I think one example would be, like, um Between the Sheets. I think that was covered by Biggie, and then you kind of see the differences of how, you know, Biggie then makes that into a more like hip hop, um, but it still has the very smooth, sort of soulful influence, um, of the of the Isley brothers. So that's really interesting to me as well.
0: Oh, and what is the song? I remember, Adrian, you had shown it to me. The song that um the the MF Doom song, um
1: if, if you don't mind, is it uh, Rhymes Like Dimes?
0: Yeah, what is that, what is
1: that? <laughs> that song? <laughs> that song is uh, originally 100 Ways by Quincy Jones off of the album The Dude, which I think is like 1976, 77. That section that he uses, like the the little synth line, uh, is a part of the synth solo that happens towards like the rear end of the song. And then, yeah, it's one of the most beautifully corny tracks I've ever heard. I love that song.
0: That's definitely very exciting to consider how we can work backwards with music to learn about these older genres. And we really see this kind of these kind of vertical and horizontal exchanges with this sharing of ideas across different time periods and geographic locations, especially among students of hip hop as both a genre and kind of a movement, you can see this large emphasis on learning from the pioneers that came before. And one thing that I noticed in preparation for this podcast, and by listening to all of you, is that we can see with rappers like Grandmaster Flash and Curtis Blow, there's this continuity between them and earlier blues musicians like Gil Scott Heron, both in terms of their techniques and what they describe in their songs. And... Oftentimes, what they're describing is quite politically charged, and as we're nearing the end of our podcast, I wanted to address whether or not these same parallels exist for consumers of music especially when we contextualize our discussion around recent times with the Black Lives Matter protests that emerged in response to the death of George Floyd. Do we see an engagement with political and social issues affecting the the Black community among music listeners? Have these genres acted as catalysts for social change in that regard?
2: Looking back in time, we see there's a lot of clubs that were uh, racially segregated. There's Black clubs and white clubs. And at these white clubs that I'm going to be focusing on, there is the black musician and then there's the white audience and they would perform for their entertainment. They were seen as an aesthetic, but there was no kind of driving force. There was no decision-making. They didn't have a seat at the table, basically. So they were seen there just to perform songs that they could dance to, that they could have dinner to, that they could make conversation to, and nothing else. And I think that that has kind of, developed or evolved into what we see today um, kind of shifting the view from the there's the performer that has adapting their music style for the white entertainment value and now we see a lot of musicians especially in rap and in hip-hop like J. Cole, Kendrick Lamar, Childish Gambino um, they're saying overt political statements in their songs when they're being played Um, If you go to any party, you're going to hear Kendrick Lamar, you're going to hear J. Cole, you're going to hear Childish Gambino. But now that is kind of shifted on to kind of glossing over the political statements for the aesthetic. So you go to a party and you hear Neighbors by J. Cole playing, has a really great beat. But if you actually sit and analyze the lyrics, it's a very strong statement that he's making. He's talking about how one day he was sitting in his house and um it got raided because the neighborhood that he was in was predominantly white because J. Cole is very affluent and he bought a house in a predominantly white neighborhood and the neighbors said that there was sort of suspicious activity and they called the police and they raided his house. So that's what the song Neighbors is about. And there's actual evidence of it as well. You can look online, there's videos of the police waiting his house and when it's played at a party people just kind of sing the lyrics but they don't understand the meaning behind them and i think that right now especially after the summer that we've had no one can kind of play ignorant anymore you can't say you can't no one can turn a blind eye because we've been dancing to these lyrics for how many years if you actually sit and listen you will understand And you can, you'll be educated through music. You can also be educated through books, through uh, just doing a simple Google search. But especially in music, it's told in such an authentic and unfiltered way. People now kind of turn a blind or have turned a blind eye to it and just use it for its sheer aesthetic value. Um, I
3: just wanted to go back. I mean, so Natasha, I know you started talking about um, jazz and I think, I read somewhere um, a lot of people would consider like jazz to be like America's classical music. Thinking about it in the context where there was so much um, discrimination against Black people, that also sort of brings up the issue of asceticism in the sense of like everyone, you know, wants to be Black until it's time to be Black. And for me, I think that really means that people really are love consuming all of these, you know, like aspects of Black culture and Black music, but don't really want all of the baggage that has to come with it. Um, and also then going back historically thinking about um, again, people like Louis Armstrong, who, you know, was really revered for like his voice and for his style. But then when it came time, I think he got a TV show. Um, but then that was canceled because for a lot of Americans, that was, you know, he was too black to be on TV. So again, thinking about like how easy it is for people to separate that music that they're consuming from the actual history that comes with it. Um, and again, as Ndantasha was saying, going into a lot of more like modern movements. It is, again, easier for people to, you know, listen to all these rappers, listen to all these songs, but they're not really connected to, you know, the actual history, like, you know, people like Kanye West, um, also thinking about songs. Again, going back to how we're talking about sampling, um, I think one song that really, um, resonates with me, um, uh, The Strange Fruit, um, I think it was originally by Billie Holiday. Nina Simone made a cover of that, and that's when it became really popular. But that song just really graphically describes, you know, like lynching and the, like, you know, issues faced by Black people, um, at the time. So I think, it sort of goes to say this has been going on for a lot of time, that aestheticism and separating, okay, we want to enjoy the song, but you know, not actually understanding what goes behind it. And I think a lot of artists do purposely, you know, want to make these songs that resonate with the black community. And again, um, it's always nice to hear a lot of black artists who really still want to stick to that, you know, that root and that culture. Um, again, going back to you know, popular like Montreal artists, um, Kate my favorite artist of all time. Um, I was reading an interview he did. And he was saying that he makes his music primarily for Black people. And if other people enjoy it, that's all good. But he knows, you know, his primary aim is to make sure that, you know, he's making music that people can culturally resonate to and that he resonates to. Because obviously, it's coming from, you know, a point of his own background and his experiences. So I think it's really important um, to think about that as well. When you talked
2: about how a lot of people almost cherry-pick what they want out of Black culture. I don't know where I've heard this, but I've heard it a few times. It's a saying, it's like, they want a rhythm, they don't want our blues, which is kind of a reference to like R&B um, and how that was obviously created and popularized by the Black community. Going back to what we were saying, it's just like cherry-picking what people want out of Black culture, whether it's braids, whether it's music, whether it's nails, whether it's clothing. Um, we see that in almost every s- aspect in society that like we see. And it's really frustrating to see not only me, but the entire black community has been shamed for and has villainized and been ostracized for all of a sudden trendy and it's cool. And when it's not cornrows, it's boxer braids. And that, that whole point also translates into music and um, going back to the topic of appropriation. um, when, a song is stolen from a black artist and popularized by a white artist that just speaks to the entire power dynamics and the entire structure of the music industry. Um, and that's something that really needs to be told. People need to get credit where credit is due.
1: Uh, I think, uh, Emma, if I, if I may bring up and kind of build on a point that you brought up earlier, it's just this idea of how there are different types of listening. Uh, you You can listen... You can choose to listen passively or actively, right? And when you put on this track and it's and it's taking it in, you can take it in just for sure vibe. You can take it in for the energy that it brings to the room. But at the same time, if you've been listening to hip-hop, if you've been listening to soul music and funk music, and if you've been, like, maybe looking into the jazz music that you've gotten into over time, uh, it's written into the lyrics, uh, and it's spoken directly to you every single time you pull up one of these songs what it is that black individuals have been have been struggling with in in american society and, and, and abroad and in that sense as as emma put so eloquently what excuse do you have when you listen to these lyrics you're constantly being like passed this sort of information about what the black experience might be in in the city or in, or, or in different locations and like you choosing not to pay attention to it might actually be the result of a comfy positioning where because you might not relate to it so much or because some of the words may not resonate so so intensely with you for lack of having had similar experiences you're able to kind of like ignore it set it aside i mean what would it mean to just the average person this idea that the revolution will not be televised as put forward by gil scott or that like you know the type of intensity of experience that you hear in like hip-hop lyrics like what would it mean to to a white person or somebody who hasn't experienced the very real problems that minorities experience in North American society, to hear stories about violence that occurs as a result of systemic issues.
0: Yeah, one of the things that, yeah, I've really been reflecting on, especially, you know, with this podcast, as well as just um, kind of seeing responses on social media from, you know, peers of mine who are white, like myself, or, um, just outs from outside of the black community. There's a lot of different things, for better or for worse, that are being said. But yeah, one of the common tropes that I saw over the summer was these kind of um explanations of how it's because there isn't enough coverage of it and there isn't enough, you know, discussion of it in school, which is a hundred percent accurate. Having, yeah, gone to school in the United States, Black History Month was and even again, it, it shouldn't just be a month, we should constantly be talking about different perspectives and how politics and history have affected different groups differently. And there's certainly a case to be made as well about how the media isn't doing enough to magnify black voices and perspectives. And When they do cover those issues, there is typically a media bias, a negative media bias, um, on it. But one of the one of the places where we definitely see that you know these histories and these stories haven't gone on untold is in music. At which point, the question becomes, especially for I think like white consumers of music from the black community, one of the biggest examples like that I think of is hip hop. It's not necessarily confronting a lack of awareness, but confronting indifference, which stems from white privilege and white supremacy, which allows this kind of comfortable different distance from the topics that are actually being described. And I think that we also kind of saw that as well with kind of social media responses. And, you know, a topic that I'm very passionate about is digital activism because I find it very interesting. And in a sense, it's almost a bit of an oxymoron in that the purpose of social media and, and while it is beneficial for organization, it does kind of facilitate a lot of these things and it facilitates expressing your political views and sharing things. But um, yeah, to paraphrase M'tana C. Coates, who I think just encapsulated the purpose of protests and activism so well in that it's like progress isn't supposed to be comfortable. Otherwise, it wouldn't be needed. And that especially, and that namely applies to people who are on the flip side of oppression, who are privileged. And just we have to confront our privilege in all aspects of society, you know, economically and politically. I think it's important to understand how that affects our engagement with social issues that we may never, that we haven't experienced and probably never will and that we won't truly understand. But there still is I think an onus on you know the consumer to actually engage with what's being put forward and what's being explained through music
3: um yeah, I was just gonna say on that sort of um aspect in terms of I think there's a lot of willful ignorance, especially like in the u s um and among like white people because I think for the longest time music has been made to you know primarily appeal to white audience um as we're talking about you know how even. In you know the beginning early years of jazz, that was all you know adapted to what a white audience would like. Um, and I think when you go back to talk about aesthetics, um, a lot of artists um, within the black community have been able to benefit sort of disproportionately from a proximity to whiteness because of that aesthetic. Um, because again, usually you know it is the lighter skin artists who are more you know closer to whiteness who are able to appeal to wider audience. Um, and when you think about artists you know who were you know darker skin and who were who were not like mixed race or biracial um like artists like Ella Fitzgerald you know Simone really have to depend on their natural skill and talent as opposed to you know that aesthetic of being close to whiteness um and again when you think about a lot of artists who you know of course not to diminish their competence, but a lot of artists who are very popular you know say Beyonce I love Beyonce I'm not hating on Beyonce but she definitely has been able to benefit from that proximity to whiteness um And I think for the longest time, a lot of people, even within the black community, didn't really realize Beyonce was black, you know, it sounds funny to say that. But I think only in more recently, you know, in the 2000s, when she started making more, you know, music related to like activism with like lemonade, a lot of, you know, sort of moving towards embracing that um, sort of the black community. And again, I think the important role of these kind of artists is to use their platform to benefit others. Um, so I'm sure you're familiar um, with Beyonce. Um, she made a movie like Black is King. She had an album with a lot of like different um, like African influences for like the Lion King. So I think in that sense, you know, using her platform and her proximity to whiteness to bring up other artists is always really important as well. Um, yeah, so that just made me think
2: of just like one artist go from like assimilating into the dominant culture, into standing out and speaking out. And we see that with a lot of artists at the beginning of their careers, they are often, they often kind of blend in with the mainstream or they kind of tailor their music to what's popular at the time. And we see in their later career that they're like standing out and they're speaking out. Great example, as you said, Beyonce. She went from like all of her bangers from the early 2000s, they are still bops. And now she kind of has a very strong political message in her later works. So for what the future holds, who really knows what the future holds? So to conclude for me, I don't know what the future's going to look like. Uh no one does, but I can hope for a more appreciation of other genres outside of the mainstream. I can hope for genre blending, people kind of using their voices and their platforms for good, looking back on the past and appreciating artists of the past and their contributions to the gen- to the study of music and yeah, I just hope that everyone can uh, learn to have a deep appreciation for music and see its value in politics, in society, and in everyone's individual lives.
1: I just think uh, with uh, music and art in general, if you're connected, if if you try to connect to it and understand it and spend time with the idea of like what the artist might have intended into it, um, it's part of being connected to your past. That said. You know, it's important that we acknowledge, like, where these certain modern movements are coming from, and also their seat at the table, culturally, and celebrate that.
3: Oh, yeah, I think I just going to say, I think the main sort of point moving forward is just making sure, you know, people are really giving credit where credit is due, and just making an effort to really understand the roots in history of music and really appreciating it in its context. Um, and I think for me personally, I think there's never been a greater time to be Black. I think I'm just so proud, you know, seeing all these up and coming artists, you know, coming up on a bigger scale, whether it's from Af- Africa, whether it's from, you know, different parts of the diaspora. I think for me, that just really shows, you know, that people are finally appreciating the value that a lot of Black artists have to give. Um, and I think, again, also speaking within like that dynamics within the Black community of artists, um, making sure that we are, you know, also understanding how, you know, like white privilege and all these issues come into play. Um, as I mentioned, like with Beyonce, you know, making sure that, you know, these artists are using their platform to make sure no one is being marginalized and everyone has a chance. Um, and as, again, as I mentioned, with these artists who are sort of bringing up um, smaller musicians on a bigger scale, just making sure credit is going where credit is due, whether it's Diplo, whether it's Drake, any of these really big artists, I think it's important to just remember and we shouldn't let that sort of pop culture get in the way of us really understanding and appreciating music and the context of where it comes from.
0: So that about wraps it up for today. You can check out more of our podcasts on the McGill International Review website, Podbean and Spotify. Thank you so much for listening.